Welcome to Abuela Sanacion, a podcast for our common good. I am Dr. Rosemary Celaya Alston. I'm here with my co-host, Marie Dahlstrom. Today, we're continuing our conversations and dialogues about the upcoming presidential election and the importance of voting. Our guest today is Dr. Steven Nuno Perez, who recently wrote, quote, the current political system alienates Latinos. We need to stop portraying them as apathetic and blaming them for not showing up to vote, but rather find ways to diminish the sense of alienation and facilitate their participation, end quote. There are many systemic barriers to the Latinx vote. However, when candidates share voters' experiences and connect with us, with our lives, we are more likely to vote. Research shows that Latinos make up 1% of all local and federal elected officials, even though we're more than 18% of the national population. Dr. Stefan Nuno Perez is the Director of Communications and Senior Analyst at Latino Decisions. His research largely explores the relationship between Latinos and the American political system. He currently is an Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Northern Arizona University, the Lumberjacks. Dr. Nuno Perez's work Academic work has focused on Latinx, LGBTQ, political participation, the impact of voter IDs on minorities, and the influence of partisan outreach on Latino vote choice. He teaches courses on immigration, Latino politics, political participation, and research methods. Dr. Nuno Perez brings almost eight years of experience writing for NBC News, Latino covering politics, immigration, and political campaigns, and life stories of Latinos making their imprint on the American story. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Stephen, could you please tell us a little bit about your journey to this point in your life? My journey to this point—that's a big question. I was born in um, I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm a, I'm a very a very much a product of Los Angeles. I uh, went I was born there in uh, um, in East LA in White Memorial Hospital in East LA. Um, my parents uh, grew up in Boyle Heights, which is sort of the epicenter of of uh, Latino politics in, in in California. And I like to think of the Lat- the center of Latino politics. Uh, in the country, um, you know, we have, you know, largely the, the Chicano movement um, was uh, very much centered there. Uh, the uh, United Farm Workers movement, um, the, uh, you know, the, we have a lot of um, events and, uh, you know, I, I went to, I played uh, Pop Warner football at a place in East LA called Salazar Park. And it wasn't until I was a grad student um, that I know that uh, Ruben Salazar was the first uh, LA Times writer uh, of uh, of Mexican American descent, um, so I'm I'm very much ensconced uh, and grew up uh, in this in this sort of um, in sort of this area. My my parents um, grew up and of course knew uh, Cesar Chavez and and of course anytime someone was born um, in in East LA and knew Cesar Chavez, they wanted uh, Cesar Chavez to be the godfather of their kid, right? So um, <laughs> so so. <laughs> so as a kid, you know, we always kind of went up, we always went up uh, to the Central Valley 
Um, and I, I didn't know who this who this guy was. Again, as, as a kid, um, he was he's an interesting guy. A lot of folks congregated around him. He was he was a very important person. I knew that. Um, but um, so politics has sort of always been around me. Um, and then I went to grad school in 2000. Well, I went to I graduated from UCLA in 1997. Uh, um, went to UC Irvine for for my PhD in 2001. Um, and then uh, was a professor at uh, Northern Arizona University in 2008. I've been here in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, since then, um, you know, you, you realize that, um, you know, fewer than, you know, 1% of the PhDs out there are, are Latino. Um, there's less than, you know, 5 or five or 6% of the political scientists out there are Latino. Um, and, and you quickly realize that, um if someone's going to help your community, it's going to have to be you because, because no one else is going to do it if you don't do it. Um, and so it's been very important for me to, to understand the Latino community, to, to help others understand the Latino and be a, a bridge um, between the Latino community and, and, uh, and non-Latinos. Tell us or share with us about your work at Latino Decisions. So I'm the um, communications director for them. I'm also uh, a senior analyst for them. Most of my work revolves around uh, obviously communicating with the media, um, trying to um, explain and uh, guide them with uh, our data and, and what it means uh, when we uh, present data and working with uh, our partners in, in the media so that they can share our stories as accurately as possible. Um, and uh, my work with Latino Decisions also is as an analyst is to uh, help to manage the the uh, the surveys that we do, the projects that we do, focus group surveys, uh, experiments, uh, etc. And then and then try to figure out once we have all this data, what does it mean? Like how do we come up with uh, a, a story that uh, number one is is uh, is actual, right? Is is truth. Uh, but one that is is, is accurate um, and one that is uh, based on the evidence that we have. Uh, so there's a lot of mythology out, out there about Latinos, um, and and we try to stick to the data and the evidence uh, when we make make comments about the Latino community. So that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do, and I've been doing that for the last eight or so years. I've worked for NBC News uh, since about tw 2012, uh, trying to share stories trying to uh, include folks in the Latino community, uh, researchers across the country who, who study Latinos in various ways and trying to get them to uh, share their, their stories with us, to share their, their research with us uh, so that we can put forward a picture of the Latino community that is based on the research, uh, based on what we, we know based on the scholarship and, and not to rely on, as you, as you may know and realize, a lot of what we think about Latinos is based on stereotypes and, uh, and mythology. And that is not a uh, good place to, uh, to begin a conversation about what Latinos want and need in this country. Right. Stephen, can you talk um, a, a bit about why, have, um, uh, why has the media been so focused on Latinos for once? 
what do you see happening? I have to say, personally, uh, I read uh, articles quite often, and, and every other one refers to Latino decisions. You guys are very, very <laughs> popular, and you guys are uh, really uh, referenced a lot in the media. What is happening in this election year? Well, there's a major demographic shift, and, and there's this huge demographic shift that's been going on for a long time. And, the, you know, it began really in, um, obviously it began from the beginning. I mean, you, you know, the United States invaded Mexico and, um, you know, acquired land that was that was Mexican land, you know, back in, in 1868. Uh, so Latinos are uh, amongst the oldest members of our society, uh, but also amongst the newest members of our society. And uh, that has created a, a large political shift in how we talk about a lot of issues with regards to race, um, with regards to uh, Latinos' relationship with uh, the American capitalist system. Uh, the Mexican-American story in, in the United States is largely one of labor. And, and so the Latinos have always been dependent uh, or depended on by the United States to provide cheap labor. Uh, and now in 1965 with the Immigration, uh, uh, Immigration Act in 1965, uh, basically opened the gates for family unification or reunification, which uh, gave a lot of Latinos the ability to move to the United States because of their long-standing existence in the United States. And, and since then, we've had this conversation in the United States about who can, who can be a member and who cannot be a member of our country. Right. And, uh, and so um, that conversation is, is, a long, is an old conversation. But the new conversation that we've had is, is Latinos now make up over 60 million um, uh, you know, members of our, of, of our nation. Um, and in a democracy, um, that matters because numbers matter in a democracy when we're talking about counting votes. And with 60 million voters, uh, roughly half are, are eligible to vote. And uh, roughly half of those are, are registered to vote. So we're talking about 16, 17 million uh, Latinos who, who will be casting their votes this year. The other thing is Latinos are not evenly dispersed across the country. They, they basically five states is where almost 85, 90% of Latinos live. And so when you're talking about 16 million voters in five states, that's a huge chunk of voters in each state that can influence the election. And even in places like Georgia and Michigan, North Carolina, where Latinos make up less than 10% of the population, they'll be able to contribute to the existing coalitions in those, in those states. So if, if there's um, white progressives and, and African-Americans that are voting in Georgia and North Carolina, um, Latinos will be a, an important part of that coalition that can help that coalition uh, get over the top in an election. So what do you think our young Latinx care about at this point, Stephen? And are candidates speaking to the issues that they care about? Yeah, I think that's a good question. You know, one of the things that people don't realize about, the, about Latinos is the most common age in the Latino community is 11 years old. And the uh, median age for Latinos is about 27 years old in this country. The most common age for, for whites in America is 58 years old. Um, so you have a, a hugely, a vastly different, two vastly different communities. And if you can imagine what someone thinks you know, what is in their interest at 58 years old. Um, they care about, you know, low taxes. They care about protecting their investments. They care about uh, protecting their businesses, uh, their pensions, um, things like that. 
when you're 11 years old, right, or, or even 27 years old, right, where the, every other Latino you will meet is either below or, or, or under 27 years old, is under 27 years old. And you can imagine at being under 27 years old, um, the anxiety that you have at that age in which uh, you're right at the point where, for instance, a very practical issue is if you are covered by your parents' health insurance, um, that is no longer the case after 26 years old. So Latinos are very concerned about health insurance. Um, you can imagine at 26 years old, you're probably with a partner, um, probably thinking about children. Um, and if, you're, if, if you don't already have children, and if you're thinking about children and having a family, you care about how you're going to support your family. You care about the education of your children. You care about access to, uh, to an education yourself with access to higher education. Um, I kind of ironically, the Republicans have been talking about being the party of family values. And yet nowhere, <laughs> nowhere in, in their policies, especially in the last eight years, is family values on there unless it's code for, you know, being anti-gay or, you know, um, doing things like that. But, you know, the Latino, the Latino population cares very much about family values because they're at the age in which they're having families. If you're 58 years old, yeah, you might care about your grandkids' um, education, but that's really, honestly, that's, that's the parent's job, right? And so you're um, at 58 years old, just not as concerned about that. The other issue with being 58 years old is when you're being asked to support higher taxes, you're being asked to support higher taxes for a group that you are not familiar with, right? So if you're asking, basically you're asking older white folks uh, to pay taxes so that younger brown folks can go to school. Um, given, the, given a lot of the, what we know about the history of the United States, that's a very difficult kind of task to do. And when we look at places like Arizona, where the difference between young browns and old whites is the largest in the country. And so it's no, it's no mistake that places like Arizona are, are flashpoints for this conversation about immigration, flashpoints for this conversation about education, flashpoints about this conversation of low taxes is because you have these vastly different groups trying to have a conversation and agreement about the priorities and where the resources of this country go. Sort of ironically, I tell my students that, you know, Latinos are, have the, the largest or have the highest labor participation rates in the country. And that's no, that's no surprise since they're the youngest group in the country, they're all trying to find work or, or working. And I ask them all to look at their pay stubs. And if you look at your pay stub, on your pay stub, there's a line item that says Medicare tax. And that tax goes directly from their pockets to someone who's old pockets, right? And, and, and pays for their health care. And yet Latinos do this on a regular basis um, and support that, that community. Um, but when you ask that community to include a 1.3% or 1.4% tax on their paychecks or on their investments uh, to help pay for the education of Latinos, um, they almost always say no. Um, so this is sort of the, the political conversation that, that we're having and sort of the issues that Latinos want. And it's no mistake that Bernie Sanders was very resonant with this, right? Is when you're talking about young people who care about an education, are saddled with debt, uh, care about uh, a fair paying job, um, fair uh, practices in which they can negotiate for, for their raises uh, to keep their jobs, uh, they want access to healthcare. 
um, they, and they want a system that, that can provide that. And, you know, there, there's really, given the resources of this country, there's no reason that we can have basically free healthcare or healthcare system for people over 65, but not for people under 65. That doesn't make sense to people that Bernie Sanders um, talked to. And so, um, you know, the other thing is that many of these folks who are over 58 years old um, grew up in an era in which we actually had a social system that paid for education. Um, I tell my kid, or I tell my kids or my students um, to ask their parents how much they paid for their college education. And many of them didn't have to go to college because you could, you could pay for, uh, uh, you, could, you had a cost of living that you could pay with a high school education. Um, and those that went to college didn't pay anything to go to college. Many will say, I went to college on the GI Bill. Well, that's socialized education. And so many of these folks had socialized systems. They, have, they live on Medicare, they have social security, they got a free education. And you know, Bernie Sanders, when he says you should have the same thing too, well, that makes a whole lot of sense to someone who's under 27 years old, um, especially when you realize that the folks who are over 65 years old had that same system when they were younger. You know, um, Stephen, thank you for this. Uh, it, th this is uh, such an important dialogue for us to have and to share with our listeners. Uh, an important reason why we started Famili uh, Abuelas en Acción, which is um, a sister organization with Familias en Acción in Portland, Oregon, is we don't, we as Latinos don't spend enough enough time talking about these important issues and understanding the historical perspective. And we just work hard. I also grew up in Southern California and uh, my parents were both immigrants and um, civic participation uh, was pretty much limited to voting. My parents modeled voting for us. But um, our family, my father was a union worker, a, a member of the IBEW, and we knew how important him being a union member was. Uh, he worked hard. And I am one of those people who my undergrad and grad graduate school were both paid for by the state of California, I say. In fact, I say it was Jerry Brown that, that was governor at the time. And I, you know, um, it was such a blessing. And it's, I don't know how I got to college, but somehow I got there. And that is what's missing now. And that's what so many families are struggling with, the burden. We've interviewed Latinx students who talk about the enormous uh, student debt that they are burdened with. Um, my daughter and I live here in San Antonio, Texas now, and uh, my daughter and I have regularly been participating in um, uh, phone banks. Uh, you talked earlier about how we're not able to do uh, traditional canvassing in neighborhoods, unfortunately, and due to the pandemic, we are uh, calling to uh, Latinx voters. And, you know, I, I loved your article about how we're not apathetic, Latinos are not apathetic, but um, we uh, have historically not in, been engaged. Um, I, I have found in my calls uh, with people, uh, a lot of people that are undecided about the election. Um, and when I talk to them about important issues, the one uh, 
common ground that is pretty safe is people are concerned about the pandemic. People are, have been hurt by the pandemic, uh, have lost loved ones, have lost jobs, and are fearful about the future of our country. What needs to happen in order to engage voters at this point? And, you know, why is it um, so important for Latinos to get to the polls? Yeah, so, you know, my example about the Medicare tax, right? Um, you know, that's one example, right? It is uh, Latinos who work uh, every, you know, work every day and get a paycheck every two weeks um, can see the, the direct result of what happens when you participate, right? Older folks participate, younger folks don't participate. And so we have a tax <laughs> on, our, on our paycheck in which younger folks are, are literally paying for older folks. The other thing is we always have conversations on how pensions um, are bankrupting our system. Well, who gets pensions? Um, well, it's not young folks, right? So mm -hmm. once again, you have a system that is bankrupting the, the, the country and that system, the, these pensions, right, is another source. Um, you know, I live in Flagstaff, Arizona, and you see, um, you, you see a, a huge caravan <laughs> of RVs driving across Flagstaff. Everyone's going to visit the Grand Canyon, uh, driving across the I-40, across the country, um, parking in the parking lots and going to the campgrounds. Um, you know, a, a large part of these RVs are paid for with people who are retired and, and, and cash a pension check every, every month um, and a social security check every month and get healthcare every month. And all of this is being supported by a workforce, right? Um, and so it's really important for these folks to, to recognize that. But the, the most important part is that we have to have a system that takes responsibility for our democracy. And when it comes to non-Latinos, our system takes representation very seriously. And we are very conscious in this country about making sure that we uh, reach out uh, to the older population uh, we make sure that they're, you know, registered to vote. It's very easy to, con to connect with them. Um, they're less mobile, right? So if you're young, uh, you're constantly moving because you're looking for jobs. And Latinos and immigrants are amongst the most mobile uh, communities in the country. And so having a registration system that requires you to register every time you move um, is a barrier to participation. Um, having a system that um, that penalizes you um, every time you move uh, is a barrier to participation. Um, having a system that you move into a new county, you have to figure out what the new rules are is a barrier to participation. So we don't, we as in our government, um, our society doesn't take participation seriously for those folks who are poor, um, who are less connected, um, who are who, who may not speak the same language. 70% um, of Latinos are bilingual. Um, roughly 30% of Latinos um, prefer to speak in Spanish. And so putting it forth the effort as a country and as a government uh, to ensure that people have access to the voting booth is step one. We don't do that very well in this country. And we need to take that more seriously um, we need to implement policies like automatic voter registration. The day you're born, you're registered to vote. 
and the country or the state will send you your voter card when you turn 18. We have somehow figured out how to sign up everybody to the armed services, every male, right? And, and now I think every male and female um, is, that is born um, gets a letter from the government telling them you're now 18 years old, you need to sign up for the, uh, um, uh, for the military service in case there's a draft, right? Um, somehow we can figure that out, but we can't figure out to do the same thing for voter registration. Um, I find that hard to believe. Um, the other thing is that once immigrants are, um, are become citizens, they should be automatically registered to vote. Other democracies do this and we don't do it because it's not, there's not an incentive for our system to do it. We like the way things are. And so we don't want folks participating um, who might change the way we do things. And so that has to change. We have to, um, we have to, um, we have to insist, right, that we take our democracy seriously. Um, and and that's, that's a fairly difficult thing to do when there's a lot of folks who are benefiting from the system uh, would prefer that these people not participate. So do you think we're at a tipping point? Do you think that we are um, going, we're seeing a seismic shift happening in terms of Latino political power? Um, yes, but not so, yes. I mean, I, I think this shift has been occurring for the last um, 60 years. You know, I mean, when we talk about the Chicano movement, uh, we talk about the influence that Central Americans are having in California politics. Um, we talk about um, much of the way that Latinos are influencing politics in uh, the Northeast, um, of course, in Florida, um, there is a, uh, a seismic shift that has been going on um, and, you know, largely as a consequence with many other types of immigrants, whether it's Vietnamese immigrants in Los Angeles, um, Hmong immigrants uh, in, uh, in the Midwest. Um, we have a consequence of American foreign policy, right, when we have, uh, say, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and Cubans. Um, influencing our elections. Um, this is a result of decades of foreign policies that have driven immigrants uh, to the United States from these Latin countries. Um, so this is the seismic shift and I want to sort of focus back right into the context of where Latinos fit in today's, uh, in today's election um, because this is, a, this is a consequence of a long um, Oh, a long, uh, you know, string of, of decisions and foreign policy uh, decisions of uh, our economic system with regards to Mexican Americans, um, and now with 60 million, you know, Latinos here, um, you know, I, I think that there is a seismic shift. But as we know, the um, the earth, the crust under the earth, right, does, doesn't shift quickly, right? Um, but you know, if you were to ask in 2010, right, um, oh, uh, can the Democrats win in Arizona? Well, in 2010, few people would say, oh, yeah, the Democrats are going to win in Arizona, right? Here we are in 2020, and the majority of the congressional delegation is Democrat. Um, you know, we have a Democratic senator. We're probably going to have two Democratic senators uh, by the end of this year. Um, 
we have three statewide uh, Democratic officials. Um, Joe Arpaio is is a footnote in Arizona politics and, and largely goodness. seen as a joke. Um, right. <laughs> um, you know, Russell Pierce um, is a dinosaur in Arizona politics. And of course, there's still those folks who want to hang on to that and to that um, empowerment, that sense of belonging, that sense of entitlement. Um, but, right, 30% of Latinos, 30% of Arizona is Latino. 65% of the K through 12 population in Arizona is Latino. Um, this is just a matter of time, right? Uh, before um, politics changes in Arizona. And in fact, today, Arizona is no longer a red state, it's a purple state. And so um, this is the seismic shift and I don't want to give the impression that seismic shifts happen overnight um, and that somehow Latinos are going to, you know, come out in droves and double their participation rates and, and all of that. Um, the seismic shift is occurring under our feet and it's occurring every day. Um, and it has been really for the last 60 years. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being with us today. Um, before we end, could you share some action steps? We are Abuelas en Acción, and we always like to end <laughs> with some action steps that okay. we all can take on behalf of a better future for our familias. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say that the, um, the foundation of, of Latino political participation um, rests in, in two general areas. Um, number one, it rests in the activity and interest of labor. And so where we see labor um, having an influence in politics, we Latinos have an influence in politics. And so where we see labor in Nevada, right, uh, in California, um, in the Midwest, right, where unions depend on membership, um, and in the past, that membership used to be tied to dues, right? And um, that has largely been, you know, um, been done away with through, through, the, through the legal system. However, um, unions also depend on members and members can give a sense of community. And that sense of community can help with uh, political organization. So that's one area that you can support to support the Latino, um, Latino voters. The other area that you can support is um, organizations. And so another, another um, way that Latinos have put pressure on the system to change is through civic organizations. When you look at places like Arizona, like Lucha um, in, um, in, uh, in California, a lot of immigrant-based organizations, um, whether it's Latino or even Asian American uh, organizations, have formed coalitions to try to um, get rights and legitimacy and integration of immigrants. In places like Arizona, there are also a large group of organizations that have been built around civil rights that are a consequence of folks like Joe Arpaio and Russell Pierce and SB 1070. Um, and a lot of these organizations are now more mature than they were back in, back in the day when they began. Um, and a lot of them have built on the model of Chicano activism, right? And that model of Chicano activism in Texas and in California and in Arizona really laid the foundation for these labor unions 
and for these civic organizations to have some sort of a framework in which they can respond to the attacks by the system, whether it's California with, with um, Prop 187 in the 90s to Arizona, um, and now in places like Texas um, and in the Midwest, kind of creating in, in the Midwest and in the South, um, starting new frameworks in which Latinos are not the largest minority group in the state, right? And so Latinos and um, African-Americans and progressive whites are trying to have, are having to come up with new frameworks in places like the South and in the Midwest. Um, and Latinos are having to learn about coalition politics um, with different types of organizations and groups and issues um, in the South and in the Midwest. And um, those folks, we are gonna see them starting to have an influence on electoral politics in the South and in the Midwest, um, hopefully this, this year. Um, but we can already clearly see the impact that uh, labor unions and civic organizations have had in the Southwest um, and perhaps uh, in Texas and continuing in Texas. And so there's a long road in Texas and everyone has a debate over when Texas will turn blue, right? Um, we're waiting. When, we're, <laughs> we're waiting, right? When, when will that happen, right? And so this is why everywhere we see barriers to participation, we see barriers to participation being put up um, largely by the Republican party, right? Um, the voter IDs, um, every state that has put up voter IDs um, has basically been a Republican-led state. And so the Republicans have been playing defense for the last 20 years, 25 years really, um, trying to put up barriers to participation to help to slow down this seismic shift in, uh, in demographics. And sooner or later, um, and in places like Arizona and California, and perhaps now in Texas, um, those barriers to participation uh, become weaker and weaker um, every election. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Rosemary, do you have any final thoughts? I just think the information that you have shared with us, um, Stephen, is so insightful and, and right on. It's a different way for people to take a look at this. Yes, absolutely. A look at where we're at in terms of that foundation underneath our feet, as you, as you shared, and it's it's amazing to hear, you know, the history and it's just the median age. I was like, what, eleven and twenty-seven? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's amazing. And fifty-eight years of age, it's just okay. So there's where the difference lies in terms of where right. people are at emotionally, physically educationally, I mean, at all levels. So thank you right. so much for this information. My pleasure. And, you know, and, and um, you mentioned the power of um, multiracial, multicultural coalitions. And, yes. um, you know, so many of our families, including ours, you know, we have the blessing. We're Latino, we're white, we're African-American. We, mm -hmm. you know, um, we are blessed by that diversity. And we, yes. you know, our young family members are reminding us that the world has changed and we are 
better for um, that uh, diversity. So uh, thank you again for being with us. And we uh, would like to end by reminding our listeners to reach out to family members and make sure everybody is clear about uh, voting, where, when, put a plan together and um, uh, carpool together, make it fun. We realize during this pandemic, it's more challenging because we need to wear masks and maintain social distancing at the polls. But as Michelle Obama reminded us, take two sack lunches if you need to and plan to wait in line for hours if you have to. Thank you again for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast on Buzzsprout, Apple, or Spotify, and we appreciate your reviews. We look forward to having you join us next time on Abuelitas en Acción. Gracias.